Welcome to a virtual retreat with Cardinal Sean. Christ, our light in the darkness. Today's episode, The Good Samaritan. As a young priest working in Washington, I used to look forward every year to a contest that the Washington Post had. They would actually give a prize to the person who received the most parking tickets during the course of the year. And each year, the winner was always the same person, the Russian ambassador. It was kind of a joke, really, because people realized that the Cold War was going on and Russia represented the evil empire, and I'm sure that all of the policemen in Washington looked for every opportunity to put a a ticket on the ambassador's car. Of course, the diplomats had immunity and didn't have to pay any tickets anyway. But it was like a game that they were allowed to play. The Cold War in those days meant that there was a lot of spontaneous suspicion and resentment against another people perceived as a threat, competitors, hostile. In the Gospels, there was also a Cold War going on, not between America and Russia, or between, but between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans had historically intermarried with pagans and drifted away from the purity of Israel's religion. Consequently, the Samaritans were not well liked. They were barely tolerated they were seen as foreigners, heretics, ne'er-do-wells. And when we hear the, the term Good Samaritan, we get warm, positive vibes. But when Jesus told this parable, and his people were gathered to listen to it, the concept of a Good Samaritan elicited a gasp of disapproval. It would seem a contradiction of terms. In fact, Samaritan and good would never be used in the same sentence. Yet Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. The Samaritan does not draw near to help because he and the victim share the same religion or belong to the same political party or root for the same football team or live in the same neighborhood. They're different. They belong to different faiths different ethnicities, different nations. They have different ideas, political ideologies. One watches Fox and the other watches CNN. But what draws the Samaritan to reach out is his compassion, his recognition of their common humanity. The man laying in the pool of blood is not an enemy, a stranger. He's a fallen human being a brother in God's family. The Good Samaritan sees the humanity, the humanity of the man who was beaten and left half dead by the muggers. The Good Samaritan runs toward the danger even as others are running away. He doesn't hesitate to go to the scene of the crime, knowing that his presence there could make him suspect since people had such a low opinion of Samaritans. He could easily have been blamed for what happened to the man. 
This gospel story is such a wonderful story for all of us. I, I often think to myself, we're, we're indebted to that lawyer that asked the right question, who asked Jesus, no, what's the most important commandment of all? I'm told that most rabbis at the time of Jesus probably would have said the most important directive, the most important commandment or rule in our faith is the observance of the Sabbath. And that was so key to their identity as God's people. But Jesus says even more important than that is the commandment of love, love of God and love of neighbor. And then that same lawyer asks another question that's very important for us to know the answer. Well, who is our neighbor? I imagine he was expecting some sort of a list of people that lived in his neighborhood or were the same race or ethnicity or spoke the same language, but Jesus' response surprises us. He gives us a hero who is not a Jewish priest or a Levite. He's not a member of the NFL or a Hollywood celebrity or a famous politician. The hero is a Samaritan who everyone considered the enemy. In the chapter before the Good Samaritan parable, there's an account of how Jesus and the apostles are heading towards Jerusalem and they ask for hospitality of the Samaritans and they're refused because they were on their way to Jerusalem. And the apostles were so angry, they wanted Jesus to call down fire and destroy that village. The hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans was, was mutual. When I was a young priest and living in Washington, there was still a lot of racial tensions. And after Martin Luther King's assassination, where we lived in the basement of a church with all the people whose homes had been burnt down in the rioting, I came to have a, a great appreciation of just how divided our community is. In those days, on the mall, they used to put on a Shakespeare play every year, and they put on a presentation of Romeo and Juliet. But instead of having the conflict between the, the two families, uh, they had a white Romeo and a black Juliet. And it helped to understand how the hatred between the groups contributed to the destruction of those young lovers. Bernstein created the West Side Story with an Anglo-Romeo and a Puerto Rican Juliet, once again showing how the pain and death come out of the hatred and the prejudice that divides people. So when the lawyer says, what's the most important commandment and who is my neighbor, he's doing us a great service to reflect on these realities. And Jesus says, what do you say? The lawyer says, love God above all else. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, do this and you will live. To obey the great commandment of love 
It's an invitation to live, to live a good life. Love changes the ecology. It makes community. It promotes the common good. It knows how to pardon, how to encourage, how to give, how to protect those who are most vulnerable. Who is my neighbor? What a great question. And Jesus answers by giving this wonderful parable of the Good Samaritan, a very surprising answer. The story of a street crime, a traveler severely beaten, stripped, and left half dead in the gutter. People pass by, even people from the religious establishment, a priest, a Levite. They passed on the other side so as to avoid coming near. You have the impression that the traveler would have died if he had not received the help that he did. And just at that crucial moment, the stranger arrives and everything changes because he saw the man. He was not invisible any longer. The Samaritan saw and was moved to compassion. That word in Greek that's used in this gospel is used only in this gospel referring to the the Good Samaritan and in another gospel to Jesus as one who is moved to compassion. The Samaritan sees the man's suffering. He sees what others fail to see or refuse to see. Whenever I read this gospel, it makes me think of the conversion of St. Francis. Just before he died, St. Francis wrote his last testament. And in there, he describes his conversion. He said, When I was still in sin, God in his grace led me among lepers. And I had this terrible revulsion of lepers. But in this occasion, God's grace changed my heart. And I practiced mercy with them. I gave the leper my clothes, my money. I kissed him. And then everything in my life changed. Everything that had been bitterness was changed into sweetness. I always say that Francis did not cure the leper. The leper cured Francis. Cured him of his vanity, his selfishness, his cowardice. And it was the beginning of a new life. A life of discipleship. A life of faith. What are the virtues that we see in the Good Samaritan? Well, certainly there was courage. As I mentioned before, he could have been blamed for the crime, like people being stopped for driving while black. Jesus tells us that discipleship is a costly grace. We'll be criticized, made fun of, persecuted for what we do. But the Good Samaritan did not fear for himself. He feared for the life of this man who was dying. He is compassionate. I always say that the Gospels have a wonderful contrast between the community and the crowd. 
The crowd is a collection of people, of individuals, each with his or her own agenda, their own desires, who tend to push people away from God. But the community draws people closer to God. From God, the community recognizes our responsibility that we have to take care of each other and the extraordinary effect that that has in the world. Many years ago in Scotland, long before uh, the Brexit was voted on, there was a British aristocrat who was rushing to London for an important crucial session of the parliament. And his automobile got mired in the mud on this country road, and he was desperate. There was no AAA or no one to help him, and he, he thought he was going to fail to get to London for this very, very crucial vote, when suddenly this Scottish farm boy appeared with a yoke of oxen and goes over and pulls his car out and saves the day. The man was so grateful, he wanted to reward that farm boy. And he said, surely there's something that I can do for you. And the man said, no, I'm very happy to be of service, sir. He said, but certainly you must have some dream, some, something that you really always want in your life. And the boy laughed and he said, oh yes. He said, I always wanted to be a doctor. He said, but that's beyond the, the realm of possibilities. You know, when that man returned to London, he thought about how he could reward that boy. And he put, it, put the boy in contact with a school where he'd arranged for him to have a scholarship. And that boy went and studied. Many years later, during the worst part of the Second World War, Churchill was dying of influenza, Winston Churchill, when he was prime minister. And actually they saved his life with a miracle drug called penicillin that had been discovered by Fleming, who was the farm boy who'd received the scholarship from the man who was Churchill's father. I always say that like acts of violence and selfishness, acts of love also have a ripple effect and can profoundly change human ecology. In a movie culture that produces so many sequels, like Batman 2, The Planet of the Apes 4, Rocky 15 or whatever, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a sequel to The Good Samaritan? where the good Samaritan son is dying of leukemia, and the son of the man he rescues gives him a bone marrow transplant that saves the life of the good Samaritan son. Our task is to build a civilization of love, or there will be no civilization at all. The Jews speak about tikkum olan, repairing the world, God entrusts us to that beautiful task, repairing the world. Our Creator places us here.
to care for creation and for one another. Our faith life and participation with the worshiping community help us to have the interior strength and the generosity to be able to do just that. To live a life of faith and service, we need the vision that we see the world through God's eyes. That vision grows in the hearts of people who make time and space for God in their lives, who have a rhythm of prayer each day, and who gather with their brothers and sisters to worship God on the Lord's day. If we do not pray, that vision will fade and we'll be part of a crowd rather than part of a community. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan is confronted by human suffering and must overcome his own prejudices and his natural inclination to reject and resent his adversaries. But the victim also needed to have a change of heart. The first people to hear this parable were Jesus' Jewish disciples. They would have identified immediately with that Jewish victim and with his view from the ditch. They would easily imagine themselves lying in the mud, bleeding, stripped of all resources, and then opening their eyes and looking up and forced to see horror of horrors, one's hated enemy, as the merciful face of God. It was their worst nightmare. As a victim, unable to resist, they're forced to accept God's mercy from someone they regarded as beyond the pale. They would have shuddered at the thought. But once they got over the shock, then sooner or later, they would come to the slow realization that sometimes it's, it's possible to accept God's healing and forgiveness only when we have reached the depths of need, having been stripped of everything, even one's hates and prejudices. The parable is not only about the kindness of the Samaritan, but also about the conversion of the victim, forced to recognize that compassion and love can come from one's enemies. Then no one is the enemy. Everyone becomes a neighbor. In 1975, there was a beautiful mass in St. Peter's, uh, in Rome for pre-survivors of the concentration camps. And Cardinal Wright preached the homily at that mass. And I will never forget his speaking about World War II and, and a person who I believe was a relative of his. He told us about a pilot who was on a bombing mission behind enemy lines and his plane was shot down in the middle of the night. And he was very seriously injured. He was unconscious. And the next morning, after the crash, he woke up in a clean bed, in a simple bedroom. He looked around the room and he saw on one wall there was a crucifix. And on the other wall was a picture of a German Air Force officer. Eventually, he came to understand that a German farmer and his wife had found him in the field, dying and they brought him to their home. Only later did he realize that they were willing to risk their lives because when they found him, they found a rosary in his pocket. The farmer and his wife 
said they had a son who was a pilot in the Luftwaffe. Each day they prayed the rosary for that son, that he would be safe, and that if he would be shot down, that someone would take care of him. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise. Be a neighbor to the one in need. See in each other and in every person a child of God, a brother, a sister. Your faith invites you to be like the protagonist of this parable of the Good Samaritan, running toward danger, putting yourself in harm's way to serve someone you don't know, perhaps, but who is never really a stranger and always a neighbor. You are there to take care of the victim, the wounded, and at the same time, you are making that road to Jericho, the road of life, a safer place, a community, turning the crowd into a community where people are neighbors and love and care for one another. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight and we look forward to being with you tomorrow.